Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Linode is our cloud server of choice. Grab the Nanode plan for just $5 a month. Just five bucks. That gets you a gig of RAM, a blazing fast 25 gig SSD, and one terabyte of transfer. Let's be honest, you can go a long ways on that five bucks. When you do need to scale up, their prices are predictable, so you can put your calculator down. You won't need it. We've been running changelog.com on Linode for years, and we've always impressed by their award-winning support team. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Once again, that's linode.com slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community Slack with us in real time during the show in the Go Time FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Ryer. Today we're talking about Go.dev. Uh, it's a user-friendly hub of curated resources for Go. And we're lucky enough to have three of the brains behind it joining us today. Carmen Ando, Steve Francia, also known as SPF13, and Julie Q. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. We're also joined by John Calhoun, the regular. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Matt. I'm doing well. What's been going on? Not too much. Okay, well, let's get started. I want to hear all about GoDev, Go.dev. So uh, who wants to give me a sort of intro? What, what is it and what's it for? I can share that. It is a new official Go website for our Go community. And it's intended to be a single destination where the entire community can gather. Today it contains learning resources. It contains a package discovery or a module discovery component. And it also contains different resources to be able to help evangelize Go within your companies or to new companies. And this is not going to replace Golang.org, is it? No. So they're going to coexist, those two? They're going to coexist. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So, and the difference then being, I guess, the Golang org is the, is the kind of open source home. It's the technical home of, of the project itself. You know, we, we struggled a lot. You know, creating two websites is not always the best thing, right? Two websites could create more confusion. And we initially started trying to expand golang.org to contain all of these things. And we really struggled with that because the, the intent of golang.org, which, if you don't know, actually gets distributed with the Go release, uh, mm. most of the content for the golang.org. It's to be an official place for the Go project, the language, the compilers, the tools. Um, and what we want to do is expand it to be something that encompassed all of this stuff for the Go ecosystem. And eventually, after a few months of trying to figure out how to, to shoehorn these competing goals into this existing site, we realized that maybe their best is two separate sites. And so you know, the golang.org is going to remain the way it is. And 
The second site is is really curated content that's created by the Go community and for the Go community. Right. So how did it get started then? Was this something that you internally saw that there was something missing or was this kind of something that the community asked for? It's an interesting answer to that question, Matt. I like the way you framed it. I'll be the judge of whether the answer is interesting or not, Steve, if you don't mind. <laughs> so it, it, we actually started this project over f- four years ago. Really? So as a community member, I was talking to the Go leadership at Google about potentially joining. And I was it was in a new role that they'd never really had someone do before. And, and so as part of that, I wrote a document um, that was from my community member perspective of the things that were missing that we needed to address. And, and I wanted to, if I was going to join Google, I wanted to join to build those things. Um, and on that document, it had, um, and, and I'll read it to you, it was provide educational resources for Go adoption and best practices working with partners to create the best and provide the best training materials. Write the story of the value of Go and communicate that story broadly and solve the problem of discoverability of libraries slash packages. The idea behind this wasn't necessarily one project at the time, but those were all things that that started at that point over four years ago. Fast forward, I'll also say that that document also had other things like the Go user surveys came out of that document, which we just finished doing our fourth one of those. Improved IDE experience, dependency management, those were all things in, in that document. And you know, if you look at the things the Go team has done for the past few years, a lot of them were in there. So now we, we fast forward to me joining Google. I worked with Russ and Samir to obtain the right uh, staffing uh, by presenting this, these concepts to our, the Google leadership. And they did. They gave us the opportunity to expand the team, which led to hiring Carmen and Julie who then did most of the heavy lifting of bringing the project forward. Great. Well, thank you very much for doing all that excellent work. I'll tell you, the the thing you mentioned about package discovery is quite an interesting one because, uh, you know, for a while in the beginning of Go, there, were, there weren't that many packages. And over time, of course, it's grown. And, and so now there's actually, people have a lot of different choices when it comes to if they're going to, bring in some dependencies and things. And it is kind of like a little bit like the Wild West. So do you see this as being a way to sort of tame that a little bit and find some of the more trustable open source packages out there? Yeah. We see this, this is not a Go problem. We we think this is a modern software development problem. And as you kind of get critical mass, the problem gets bigger, as you're saying. But it's a problem that every language is struggling with right now, some to an extreme and, and some, I think Go is actually on the smaller end of that. But we, we do, the, we do see this as an opportunity to solve this problem for Go. And will it take into account things like if packages have stopped being maintained or if they do things that are kind of generally accepted to not be great patterns and things like that, is it going to be opinionated in that way? Yeah, I definitely think it's something that we've talked about and considered adding for the future. So right now, if you think about the Go ecosystem, like the thing that's really out there is 
godog.org, which is provides like package documentation, but it's missing a lot of this information about sort of like, you know, is this package still being maintained? Is this something I actually want to integrate into my site? And so that's definitely part of what we want to do, especially at pkg.go.dev. Now that it's launched, we've laid the foundation. That's all the kind of stuff we're thinking about. Yeah, Julie, you spoke at, I've, I've seen it a couple of times, actually. Uh, you do talk about kind of how to select good dependencies and what to look for and things. Uh, anyone interested in that should definitely have a search around. Uh, it's a great talk. And you talk about things like, you know, are there tests in this package? And uh, what are some of the other things that are important when it comes to choosing dependencies? And why is that important? Yeah, if I had to bucket it, I would say that like the three main things to think about are popularity, quality, and stability. By popularity, what we're really wondering is are other people using this package? And the reason that that's really important is because it essentially gives you a little bit of a heuristic of are there other people out there that care about this? So say like the author suddenly decides that they don't really want to do anything to do with this package. What are the chances that someone else is going to step up? What are the chances that they're going to look for bugs? What are the chances that if I make a big part of my code base depend on this, I can you know count on this kind of being there in the future? I think quality is things like, is it a well-documented package? Does the code have tests? Does it look like it's something that essentially looks like idiomatic Go code to me? And you want that because it kind of gives you a sense of sort of how familiar the package author is maybe with creating Go packages. And essentially what you're evaluating when you look at a third-party package is, like, is this code that I actually want to put into my code base? Um, and so if, you know, on a Friday afternoon I'm trying to deploy, um, which we all admit we do. <laughs> you want to know that you're not going to suddenly look at code that looks like something you've never seen before. And then the third thing is essentially stability. So, you know, obviously technology changes, the Go ecosystem changes. And so as things are changing, can I count on this author to think about sort of where I am with my project? So something you don't want to see is, you know, someone had an exported function in one version, and then all of a sudden in the next version, it's not a major release, but that function got taken away. Because um, that essentially is going to create a lot of work for you as you're upgrading your code base. And so that's kind of how I would go about thinking about it. One of our actual uh, listeners had asked the question, like, will any of this data ever that you guys are using to sort of figure out what packages are there? I'm assuming like you'll be gathering some data. They basically asked, would it ever be made publicly available? And the specific question they're asking was, when you're looking at packages, one of the ways you can tell if it's like a good package to use is if bigger projects are using it. So like if Docker's using a package, there's a good chance that, you know, they're going to step up and make sure it doesn't die. Whereas if it's a bunch of really small applications, then it popularity there might not matter as much as one really big entity. If you're planning on like sort of exposing that sort of data and making it possible for people to explore like what big projects are using these packages. So it sounds like that information is they're looking for like what a package is importing and the what a package is being imported by. So all that information actually is already available today on pkg.go.dev. So what you would do is for any package that you're interested in, you can click on the imports tab to see like what other packages it's using. Or on the flip side, you can look at the imported by tab and see who else is using this. That's cool. And that's different to Godoc, isn't it? That new pkg.go.dev. Mm -hmm. Godoc is just documentation. 
and the intent for package.go.dev is to be much more encompassing of, of these more rich information around each package. Right, yeah. Yeah, there is some um, information about imports and importers on godoc.org, but our goal is to sort of take this information and bucket it in a way that's uh, something that people care about a lot more. So uh, one thing that you know you might notice on the importers by tab is that we tend to group the importers and count them depending on sort of not just like say Kubernetes has one package and they're you know importing like this one thing a thousand times. We want to be like thoughtful about how much that weighs into the popularity of the package. Oh, I see. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. So if you think about it, like, why do I care about popularity? Essentially, what it's answering is telling me how many people have decided to use this package and integrate it into their code base. And so one thing is that you might notice, like, there's one package, there's one, say, like, repository. And they, and like, let's call it like, you know, julieq.org slash foo. And I have a million packages in there and they're all importing this one package. And so does this third-party package now have a million importers or should it really have one importer? It's something that we don't actually quite have, um, have an answer to yet, but that's the kind of level that we want to be thinking about it. So, you know, you can think about this in sort of like a maybe I'll count it as a million importers, but the way that users might want to see it is that all of it's grouped under one thing so that you can answer questions like this one big organization is using it or this one really important module is using it without seeing just a giant list of things that essentially are all telling you the same thing. Right. No, that makes sense. And something else you mentioned in your talk, Julie, is about looking at dependencies for packages, how many dependencies your another dependency has. So if you're going to import a package, say you've got two options, it might be sensible to choose the one that has fewer dependencies. But why really is that? Why do we care about that and mm -hmm. how many things are... Because it's not our problem, is it? Well, the funny thing is that it, a lot of times it feels like it isn't our problem until it is. <laughs> In my talk, um, you know, I gave this example about this package called uh, Pad Left, hy completely hypothetical package. <laughs> <laughs> and it might be transitively depended on by, you know, millions of different other packages. And you personally never end up using Pad Left, but if it got deleted all of a sudden from the Go ecosystem and all of that code was disappeared and you could never find it again, it could actually end up breaking a lot of your stuff. And then you now suddenly have to be like, oh no, like how is this happening? I have to find a tree of things that was depending on this. And so it can cause you a lot of problems, even though on a day-to-day -day basis, it might not seem like this is something that actually matters. And so obviously getting deleted is a really bad situation, but there are also other things like, you know, security vulnerabilities or maybe licensing issues and other things along those lines that you think a lot about when you're thinking about your own package, but you should really think about it with all of your dependencies and your transitive dependencies as well. I think there's an interesting thing here too is we, we often reduce things to things that we currently have, right? So you just said, like, the, the question you asked, Matt, was more is it better to have more dependencies or less? And there's not an answer to that question. It's a really, it's a depends. If you have more dependencies, but they're stable and they're well-tested and, you know, they're high-quality dependencies, I will take that every day over a fewer number of less, the lower quality, less stable dependencies. And so I, I think really the question is not how big is the dependency tree, but what is the quality of your dependency tree? 
And is that something, you know, are we really evaluating anytime you import a dependency, it really becomes part of your project. And I don't think we really think about that as much as we should. That as soon as you do this, you're inviting that code into your home. And now you're responsible for it. And so if you're going to invite them in, you, you want to make sure that that's something that you feel comfortable with. And, you know, so I, I don't think quantity is necessarily the right measurement of that. I think quality is really the right measurement, you know, and then multiplied by quantity. That's a good point because, like, the standard library really is just a set of third-party libraries. It's just one that we know is maintained at a very, very high standard, whereas anything on the, you know, on GitHub or whatever, we don't really know what their standards of quality are, so it's just kind of a gamble at that point. But, like, if you know it's an organization that has those same, you know, levels of standards, then you can kind of import those with a lot more, you can import more of them without as much fear of something breaking. Yeah, and so this this also helps package developers, doesn't it? When if we think about like what people are going to, what criteria people are going to use, what they're going to look for in packages. If someone out there wants to roll their own package for something, then there's kind of now a, a nice little. I mean, Julie, your talk is great for people that also want to do packages. There are some standards. There are some things that the community now is starting to expect. But I wonder if. Could this make it more difficult for new packages to emerge if we start to really shine a light on the packages that are tried and tested? Can you see a world where we actually end up making it difficult for new packages to emerge? Or is this sort of selection process going to just be good for everybody, do you think? I'll take that one. I, I think I'll start by saying if a package solves the problem really well, then there isn't much of a need for another package, mm. right? There's not a, like the the standard library is a great model. I, when I first start, started learning Go, I, I looked at that as, you know, the pillar of, of excellence. And, and I tried to strive for that in the packages I wrote. And, you know, there's a reason there's not a lot of competitive string packages because the strings package does a really good job. But when there are ones, it's because they fill gaps that that package doesn't address. And so if a package is stable and well-tested and does the job well, then we don't have a need for an alternative. We need an alternative when, you know, there might be a fundamental shift in design philosophy or there's things that it doesn't accomplish. And that's a very natural thing that happens. It, it's, it's kind of, a, we, we have a similar debate about companies. And the larger a company is and the more established does it stifle uh, new companies being able to emerge. And, you know, I'm not going to, there's a big political and philosophical debate around that. But, you know, the, the reality is that over time, we've seen that startups do emerge and they, they're there to fill gaps. And the larger a company is, and I will translate to packages or libraries, the, the more established it is, the less it has a chance to migrate and move. And, you know, it can't adapt to maybe new, new requirements that have come through. And so when the requirements change, which over time requirements always do, it really opens a door for new packages to emerge and, and do that. And I think it's a very healthy thing for an ecosystem to have. I think the JSON package is a good example of this, where the one in the standard library is great, but there have been ones that emerged that sort of solved a slightly different problem. Like if you don't want to build a struct to get something that's like six levels nested, there's a couple of packages out there that make it really easy to dive six levels in and get one specific piece of information, and that's it from the JSON. And there's other ones that maybe they're, they try to be faster or, you know, there's, there's different goals depending on what you're looking for. 
And even though you'd think, oh, the standard library has it, nobody's ever going to compete with that. The truth is people do compete with them because there are specific goals that they're going for. And like, even if you look at front-end frameworks for like JavaScript, you'd think at some point one of them would have just won out and everybody would have stopped, but they all solve different goals. And if something comes along that's unique enough and solves a different enough problem, I think we see that that tends to happen. It still tends to you know get some traction and move up. Have you heard of our newest show called Brain Science? Yes, Brain Science. It's a different kind of show, I know. And it's probably one of the ones that reaches the furthest out from our typical listener audience. But this podcast is what we call For the Curious. And what's cool about this show is we're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and pretty much what it means to be human. If you've ever thought about why you do what you do or why others do what they do, then this show is for you. Head to changelaw.com slash brain science to listen, subscribe, and learn more about this awesome show. Here's a preview of a recent episode called One Small Act of Kindness, talking about empathy and mirror neurons. So it sounds like pliability and flexibility is a pretty crucial role too in relationships because if you're not flexible, bendable, pliable, whatever, however you want to phrase that, mm-hmm. if you're rigid, right, right that's only going to, it's going to be difficult for you to flex, right, to enable change or to what you've said before, recalculate. Yeah. You know, accept new data, make, you know, analyze that data, make a new plan and iterate towards a new action. Yeah. And so one of the other things involved with this flexibility would be what researchers have discovered as mirror neurons. And so mirror neurons are these neurons within the brain that help us sort of get access to another person's emotional experience. And so there's an action component in it that it was first discovered actually with monkeys and this sort of mimicry that occurred by watching somebody else do an action. Well, in the same way, I can sort of watch somebody else walk through something in terms of an emotional experience. And if I'm holding space for them in my mind, like my body physiologically, these mirror neurons come, come to play. Is that why people cry when they watch movies or certain movies because their mirror neurons are firing because they're watching somebody go through a situation and they're empathizing with them and can't help but encapsulate themselves Mm -hmm. into their scenario and feel what they're feeling? Mm -hmm. Is that why? Yes. Okay. So is that why anybody cries at anything when it's like, say, movie related? Because they're, that's what's happening? Yeah. Think about it sort of like this emotional contagion, right? So that's interesting to put it that way. And we've said mirror neurons several times, but this emotional contagion, I I believe, is actually a a better subtitle for mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so some of this emotional contagion or mirror neurons, like the research has been rooted in aspects of pain, because if I can recognize sort of the suffering of another. All right. To keep listening, head to changelaw.com slash brain science slash nine. That will take you to the episode titled One Small Act of Kindness. Marielle and I dig into this thing called empathy as a construct. We ask questions like what key brain structures are involved? How can we better understand empathy to be able to better navigate ourselves and our relationships with others, both at home and in the workplace? 
It's a deep subject, a very fun subject. Again, changelaw.com slash brain science slash nine or search for brain science on your favorite podcast app and subscribe. We'd love to have you as a listener. context package when that happened that was kind of one of those shifts you talked about steve where suddenly now people expected to be able to cancel things that they couldn't cancel before for example like copying is there a context aware copy operation in the standard library if you do io copy it just copies the whole thing until uh, the end of the file right is there a cancelable one or do you have to write that on your own i'm not aware of it in the standard library well so use cases like that are there's still plenty of opportunity for anyone really to contribute. That's the thing. So I don't want, pe- I'd hate for people to be put off because standards are going up, but that doesn't mean you can't contribute something. And especially like, like Steve, your point about find the thing that, that isn't already solved and that's where you can innovate. So I think that's great. And I agree that raising the standards is only going to be good for most people. It's going to be great because that is what we care about. We do care about good dependencies that we can rely on and that are going to stick around. So one of the goals you guys had mentioned was sort of helping companies understand what other people are doing with Go and I guess learning from that, deciding whether or not to adopt it. I guess this is something that a lot of us probably don't see, like at least me, because I'm, while I want people to adopt Go, I don't generally go out and talk to big companies and say, here's why you should use it. So is that something that like the Go team is actively pushing? Like, is that you know, a big goal is to sort of make it easier for people to understand that. And can you, I guess, just like elaborate on what people are looking for, how you can help them. And like, you know, if somebody's looking to maybe talk their company into using Go, what you'd recommend? So we've spent a lot of time meeting with different companies, trying to understand what their needs are and what they're struggling with. I'll also say, um, you know, one of our big goals as the Go team is adoption. We want Go to be used as widely as possible. And as part of the adoption journey, which which we're all familiar with kind of that graph that starts slowly and then there's a chasm, which is early adopters, and then there's the big chasm at the end of that's kind of mainstream, and there's different stages to it. And as a language growth, the enterprise is really that next big gap for Go to be able to tap into adoption more. We really got lots of adoption on startups and and hobbyists and very early and and so you know we recognize that the enterprise is important to get go adoption to really fulfill its potential part of that we're doing lots of research and we've been talking to lots of companies and you know from all different walks from retailers to banks to you know multimedia companies to you know just from every different style of company and and in in lots of different continents and through those conversations, we've heard uh, uh, two things that almost every company asked us, two questions almost every company asked. And these are companies that are either thinking about using Go, or they've done a prototype with Go, or they've adopted it for some projects. So the two questions that everybody asked was, who else is using Go? And what are they using it for? And as we talked to them, we, we, we heard lots of different stories, uh, which really got us excited. 
they, they talked about prototypes that they wrote in Go. And because they tried to talk to their management about it, they, they, they had challenges and they thought Go would be a good solution for those. Their leadership, the technical decision makers, wanted to know, well, who else is doing this? And what are they doing with Go? And they didn't have good answers to those questions. And so a lot of those stories stopped there. But some of those stories continued and said, you know, we had people that, you know, they felt confident enough that it was a good decision that they kind of went rogue and they built a prototype and go, and it ended up being, you know, phenomenally successful. And, you know, so th those pioneers in, in those companies really provided the things that they wanted before, which were these stories. And so we're really happy that we were able to tell some of these stories. And we've been working with these companies for, for many months to be able to capture these stories that they shared with us and make them publicly available and share them broadly. And hopefully the next round of people answers to those questions uh, so that when they want to go to their leadership and answer these questions, you know, who else is using it? And what are they using it for? And are they in our, you know, kind of demographic of company uh, or a vertical of company? They'll have answers to those questions. It wasn't just in these internal meetings. We also did different surveys and this was one of the top things that people asked for in our surveys. Now, if you're coming from a small company or you might be an individual consultant, this probably sounds foreign to you. But if you're coming from, you know, if you're working at a big company, if, you know, on our website, we've launched several case studies from big companies, American Express, PayPal, Mercado Libre, um, and you, you can go on the website and see them all there. But these are larger companies that have more hoops to jump through, more permissions to obtain. And this was an overwhelming thing that they've been asking for. Yeah, it's interesting. If you go to go.dev, there are a load of logos, but they're not just... Sometimes you see these on websites and you feel like they're sort of brags or something. But these are actually... You can click these, can't you? And go and read about the actual ways in which people have, have used it and what they're doing there too, can't you? You yeah, sure can. You can. You can. <laughs> you definitely can. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, they're very relatable stories, and I think they're very inspiring. Like, as you click through and, and read these articles and, and these different stories, I remember back, I, I first adopted Go at, at, when I was working at MongoDB very early on. And there was not a lot of these stories that existed yet. But in using it, I, I, I fell in love with it. And it lit a spark and, and showed me potential of what a programming language could be, which led me to work at Docker, which was a big Go company or big Go user, and then eventually on the Go team at Google. And these stories share this similar thing. Like if you haven't, if you've been using Go a while, read them. It'll remind you why. It'll take you back to like that moment when you had their first aha and, and, and kind of fell in love with the language. But the other thing that I wanted to point out about these case studies that I think are really useful is when I learn how to code, I am not taught how to influence my manager or influence my higher ups on choosing Go, right? And that's just not something that they teach you in school. And this is just the perfect thing that I can point to people saying, I want to choose this technology and here's why. And I think so many people, when I had been in contact with them over the years, like, how can I convince my manager or how can I convince my CTO or whoever in the organization to use Go? Certainly there's the rogue tactic that Steve mentioned, but this now doesn't 
you don't have to worry about going rogue or <laughs> um, taking yourself out of the critical path in order to get it adopted. You can simply go here, read the testimonials, and then make a commitment to trying maybe one service at a time or refactoring one corner of your code base here and there. So, and what's great about these is that some of them are more detailed than others, and they can give you a blueprint for how you might want to do it to certain extents, right? Whether you want to go whole hog with Go or whether you want to maybe just instrument some of your observability tool set with Go or you want to do some of your automation. So I really, really liked that. And I tell people now that certainly learning how to influence is a vital skill that they don't teach in school, but this is super helpful. Yeah, I spoke to somebody at the last London Go meetup who they were reluctant because learning a new language sounds like quite a big thing, especially for people that maybe they've only, they only know one language. That was this case. But learning Go, especially if you are already familiar with a kind of C-based language, learning Go, I think, is easier than some of the languages, actually, because of its minimalist nature. And so I always kind of encourage that. And I also like this idea of using it to solve a real problem you have, even if you're not 100% certain of what it's going to turn out like. When you learn as you're actually, the context that you have when you're trying to learn something, if you've got context around a real problem you're trying to solve, it really focuses the mind. You don't have to, you don't go down the rabbit holes learning, you know, the details of how channels work or how to do struct packing for optimum memory use. You focus really on the bits that are important in your case. I find that to be quite, and that was what this person was telling me was their experience. They were surprised how easy it was to pick up and to apply when solving some little problem they had. And I think it was a tiny little problem, but they loved that experience. And then they did a presentation to the rest of the people who, anyone that would listen really in, in the company to show it off. That's quite a nice way to also evangelize for it too. And to add further to that context, I also like the idea when we talk about adoption, there are different mindsets depending on where you're at within your company and where that company is at. So sometimes what I often heard was, I don't want to just learn about theory or uh, I want to see what it looks like in practice from soup to nuts. And I think that's the other thing that these case studies also, they have some level of detail that can tell you, you hold your hand from end to end. And some, some people like to just go around and play and find what works for them, but others just need to see what it looks like in practice and see how that matured over time. So I think the case studies is one of my favorite pieces. Well, I like the whole site, but I really sing the case studies praises for lots of reasons. So moving forward with these case studies, we, we launched with a handful of case studies and, and articles uh, that were published on external websites as well. And we're excited to tell these stories more, to tell additional stories, to tell deeper stories. And and we're hoping that some of the listeners today are from companies that want to share these stories. And so we'll we'll give two pieces of advice for that. One is um, you don't need us to tell the story. A lot of these companies like uh, Capital One published several stories on their own blog about their journey to using Go. And we link to them here. And so feel free to, to tell your own story. And we'd love to link to it and, and give more exposure to it. Also, we're, we're happy to meet with you and to learn more about your experience and your story. And the best way to get in touch with us is if you go to go.dev on the very bottom in the footer, there's a share feedback link. 
and please fill out that link and tell us you're interested in, in working with us on a, on a case study or writing an article. And this is the most important thing. That's an anonymous button, right? So if you want us to actually get a hold of you, you have to put some identifying information in there so that we have a way to reach back out to you or else we, we will, which we had a few companies do. Oh, we're really interested in a case study and doing something and then submit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so put your, put your name and email in or something. <laughs> just, just some way. Yeah. And also, if you want to just like send us a non-confidential email, yeah, you can feel free to email go-discovery-feedback at google.com. And in case you can't remember all of this, we have an about page on go.dev. So just go.dev slash about has all of this information. Thank you. Uh, we'll also put some information in the show notes too. Um, will, will you have videos on there and talks and things from conferences, do you think? Yeah, so as we said in our blog post during the launch, this was really us getting uh, what we felt was like a minimum viable product out to the community as early as possible. And you'll notice on the website, we say it's for the Go ecosystem, by the Go ecosystem, but it doesn't have a ton of community resources on there yet. There is intent to add those items and to make it more of a place where the whole community can come together and learn more about conferences and meetups and talks and, and and really be a resource for them. Yeah, there's an events section on the homepage, isn't there? Yeah. And it only gives you those three events. And I think they're only meetups. It's not conferences yet. Hmm. So it, it's a start and we're really happy that it's there. But um, we're, we have so many meetups around the world that you know, if you look on it today, it says January 11th, it has three meetups, but there's actually more than three meetups on January 11th. So um, it does give a taste to it, but we really want to expand that further and, and really make it so that it can, you know, whether you're in Melbourne or Bangalore or Eugene, Oregon, which happen to be the three on the website today, or anywhere else in the world, it's going to give you, you know, when your upcoming thing is, when call for papers or participation is due, etc. Yeah, that's great. That's going to be really great to have that because it's it's difficult even for those of us that have been in the community for a while to know what's going on. And so, yeah, I think it's not just going to be a good resource for new people, I think for everybody. It's also, you know, partly it's solving the problem that kind of crept up on us. If we look back two years, there was, I don't remember the exact number, but around a dozen, maybe a little more, Go conferences. And this year, in 2020, they're scheduled to be over 30 conferences throughout the year, right? That's three a month, right? That's, that's pretty overwhelming. That means there'll be more conferences, uh, more weeks with conferences th than not this year. So uh, w with all of the excitement that's happening around the community, it's really helpful to have a place that kind of organizes and gathers that. We're not going to have that delivered in the next month or two, but it is on our roadmap and it's things that we're intending to do. So one of the questions that I've seen people ask a lot, either on Twitter or in like even on our GoTime FM Slack, this is sort of intended to eventually be a, a resource for the community. So they're all asking, are there plans to make it open source or to sort of give the community a bigger role in the project? I mean, I, I, I get early on, it's usually easier to not do that with a lot of things. Um, but I didn't know like if you could share plans for the future of that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's something we're looking into. We definitely want to make sure that whatever we do, it's it's the best thing for the community and our users and serves their needs the best way. And 
And we're trying to make sure that we're, we're doing that in the right best way possible. So it, there's ongoing discussion. We're actually, as part of our Go Developer survey, we actually ask specific questions around this. So we're ongoing doing research, trying to better understand our users' needs and uh, making sure that we're satisfying them as best as possible. Yeah, and I think something that we've also um, are actually planning on doing pretty soon is opening up the Go issue tracker to accepting feedback. So we already described that we have two different channels to get feedback, the email and also sharing feedback in the footer. But obviously, these are all private topics. And we've heard everyone sort of saying like they wanted a more public forum to be able to have discussions. So we're actually working on a process for that and are going to be sharing that pretty soon. And that's kind of like another way that we really want to be clear that we want people to share their feedback of us. Like this is something that we want to build for the Go ecosystem. That's great. In your pkg.go.dev, how do you decide what's a popular package and how do you decide which packages you're going to feature on there? And so you're saying on specifically that page? Yes. Well, because that's that's going to be essentially, I mean, packages listed there are going to be the ones people are using, isn't probably, right? Eventually, if not already. We, we hope so. Right. To some degree, there are already packages people are using quite quite often. That's why they're there. That's why they're called popular packages, is it? Yeah, that's that's how we got the name. That's Good actually name. that's how we came up with it. Makes sense. Believe it or not, there were several meetings to. Do, I'm just kidding. No, we, there were no <laughs> we just did that. So, the featured packages is a little bit of a curated one. Trying to, they're, they're largely popular packages as well, but we, they're ones that we thought fit a niche and or address kind of needs that people were looking for. Um, and then popular packages is just the popular packages from from the database based on import count. So when you're looking at those like sort of curated lists, I know there's always these, uh, they're like awesome go or awesome, like you'll see different lists like that on GitHub that list a bunch of packages grouped by sort of what they're for. So some will be like graphical user interfaces, others will be like database packages. And generally speaking, they do a little bit of curation, but I feel like it's sometimes it's just throw anything and everything in there. I guess one of the questions I'd ask is, is how do you guys sort of draw that line between, you know, you don't want to reject people or like be a gatekeeper, but at the same time, you need to like just having everything listed in one place isn't necessarily useful. Uh, you know, just listing every single package that can connect to a database or something might just be overwhelming to users. So how do you sort of navigate that middle ground? You know, if we look back to the beginning of search engines, right, the early days of the internet, early 90s, mid-90s. You might recall that Yahoo was one of the leading at the time, and they did it by doing a website directory that was human curated. And, mm. and it worked well for a time. In fact, the, the reason everyone else struggled is you couldn't really compete with the quality of that. And then AltaVista came out. And AltaVista had accuracy and quality, and it was fast. Well, it was fast. It was fast until people started using it. But there was a time it was like blazing fast. Everyone was excited. Well, yeah, but Steve, all, all software is fast until people start using it. It's the people using it that ruins it. That's why we have to care about making things work. Uh, well, then Google came around and, and figured out how to solve that problem too, of making it fast and quality and accurate. But I think that's, there's a lot to learn from that experience. Awesome Go was a great, it's still a great resource, but at the beginning when packages were smaller um, and there was less of a list, I think it was easier to maintain it and to keep track of it. As that list grows, it's harder and harder for humans to keep on top of it. 
And so what Julie talked about earlier was these signals, these visual indicators on packages, which will, I think the solution here is not to maintain manual lists, but really to have dynamic things. If you're searching for, you know, sometimes you're searching for things that are in that awesome Go curated predefined categories, but sometimes you're searching for things that aren't in those predefined categories. And no matter what you're searching for, you really want to know quality. And I think it comes back to to those indicators to, to really help us, you know, that that's the discovery portion of the site that is still ongoing that we're working on. I once wrote a blog post and made a little repo alongside it to show the code. And I made some changes to it at some point a couple of years later. And I, got, I started getting people opening issues saying, you broke our bill. This was just a repo to show off some ideas. It wasn't ever meant to be imported by anybody. So I was shocked that that happened. Is there a way that package writers and package authors and maintainers can indicate to these to the tools to go.dev and to pkg.go.dev? Is there a way that we can indicate that these things are deprecated or perhaps shouldn't be imported? Or even to say, if you want to solve this problem, there's a better package over here, so go and use that one. I think to indicate that um, something isn't working anymore, you can email us. And we've gotten requests for people to take down their packages from pkg.go.dev. So that's something that we do support doing. Mm. I think in the future, some things that we've been discussing are saying like when someone archives their repository, for example, or deletes their repository, even if we might have the code for that to provide some kind of flag so that people know about it. Mm. We don't currently have anything right now on the site for authors to say you should use this package instead. I think that that feature would require some sort of thought about like what that user experience would actually look like or if that's something that we even want people to be able to do. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the avenues right now. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine a something like a .go.dev file in the repo root or something where mm -hmm. you could potentially have some some metadata in there where we could communicate that. There are a few examples of that working quite well where the tooling can notice those things. And, and, and I don't know if that would be, I mean, there's probably just that, a few things like, yeah, check out this packet, these alternatives. Because, you know, even though it might be nice for my ego that people are using some package I've written, if for whatever reason there are better packages, which, believe it or not, does happen, I want. I just want people to use those packages. I don't want them to just use mine for the sake of it. So I would be happy to go and, and put a bit of effort in if that meant that the whole experience uh, quality goes up for everybody. Yeah, I think we've also discussed very early on during the brainstorming phase about other types of metadata that would help with that problem too. So for example, keywords would be great. Like if you could tag this package is like it's a logging package and so maybe that's what your package is and so in that way you don't have to say like this is exactly the package you're looking for but you can just have keywords for people to look in the ecosystem but this is all stuff that's um you know things we've been thinking about and are still brainstorming about and don't quite know what it will look like um yet mm, cool no but it's exciting though yeah yeah there's a lot of cool places that we can go it sounds like the experience you described, Matt, is one, I mean, it's one I'm familiar with too, where you're kind of doing educational material and you want them to have something that compiles and runs, but at the same time, like by making it something that compiles and runs, it also means somebody can import it and use it. And it's like, well, this was clearly meant to teach, not to necessarily like, you know, be the thing that does that. 
So like, you know, you might show somebody how to make an HTTP, HTTP router, but that doesn't mean that they should go use that one. It means like there's some way more stable ones out there that you should check out. So that, that becomes a little bit trickier, but I mean, maybe just having a way of tagging things is like this is a learning resource rather than something else could, could actually help with that. For this specific one, I, I, think, I think you're bringing up a good example of different needs that we might have that expand beyond just the static metadata of like readme and, and license files that we currently use. Um, for this specific one, if you don't want someone to import it, change the license. To something that is not something that's very importable. It might be a solution to this specific problem. But the tools won't guard against that, will they? Assuming that everyone checks their license before they import a package. <laughs> the other issue I have with that is, let's say I'm teaching somebody how to do something. A lot of the times I want them to have the freedom to take chunks of that code and use it. And if I say this is some really restricted license, then all of a sudden they're like, well, I can't use what I learned here without fearing that you know, I'm going to get sued later for using this code. And like, you kind of have to worry about that where I know most instructors or people who do like educational stuff basically just open source everything with an MIT license because they don't want people to feel like everything they learned is something they, you know, they're worried about using that code. Yeah. On the other hand, John, you've just thought up an excellent scam. <laughs> don't give ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the license question I gave that answer mostly tongue-in-cheek because I think everything you said, John, is right. But we, we've heard from a lot of, well, maybe not every individual is, is doing this. Companies are very concerned with this. License compliance is a huge deal because it can really get you into a lot of hot water. Every company and individual should be concerned with it, but the larger the company is, the bigger the defensive legal staff needs to be and, and, and the more concerned they are with this. And, and so, you know, so we don't, all of the Go tooling certainly doesn't do this today, but we did build in license, more license awareness into Go.dev. Mm. Yeah, it, it reports the licensing, doesn't it, on all the packages. And does it exclude things that, that where you don't recognize the license? Yeah, so it excludes certain content, but not exactly the repository itself. And so the way that we kind of make that distinction is based off of whether or not it's you know, factual information about this repository, as opposed to content that like we are taking and editing in some way. So for example, what that package imports, it's not something that we would exclude or something that imports it because that's just factual information about it or the last time it was released. But things like it's readme and it's documentation are things that we consider content that we are not uh, able to redistribute. And so if you look on pkg.go.dev and you're thinking about whether or not you should use the package and you go to the documentation page and we don't think that it's, lic it's licensed as something that is redistributable, it will become really obvious really quickly. So therefore, on the other hand, if, if you do want things including then, have a look at pick a license that is going to allow this. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that we had gotten a lot of feedback about right after launch because our license policy had been a bit strict. And also, I think we hadn't provided a lot of information about exactly what information you need for your license. But we actually updated our license policy very recently. And so if that's something that you want us to know more information about, we've shared that we do license detection by using the license check library. Um, and also a list of licenses and a copy of that content in case you want to pick one of the ones that would just fit on the site. Great, yeah. There is actually a Go tool, because I've used it, which will check the licenses of all your repos as well. 
So I'll dig that out and put that in the show notes too, because that can be quite useful. And it's actually worth bearing in mind from the beginning, because it's all very well. Usually what happens is you build the thing, you get it working, and then towards the end of the process, there's someone from a legal team will say, oh, just make sure you're not using anything. Make sure you the licenses make this all okay. And um, then if, if, if it doesn't, you kind of get yourself into a little bit of trouble. At least there's work to do to go and either find an alternative or, you know, or you sometimes have to rewrite the little bits and pieces yourself. So yeah, it is worth checking the license, as Steve was alluding to earlier. Check the license before you import. I'm surprised somebody hasn't come up with like something like Go Returns that you can customize for each company that basically just does that when you're saving, because every company has a different set of policies around what they'll allow. And it would be kind of nice to just have your code flag it as like, hey, you can't import this. It's not going to work. Like a compiler time error. Yeah, because if you just had something that would just build it into that, it'd be kind of nice to have. Hmm, nice idea. That sounds like a slick idea for sure. Especially now with like software engineering in this day and age and all this reuse and the risks that, that carry with that. Generally, I think people look on GitHub and they think, oh, it's open source, but that doesn't necessarily, like, you know, people don't always put licenses there and something being open source doesn't necessarily mean you can use it for what you want to use it for, right. especially if it's commercial. Right. And the average software developer is not a lawyer, right? So they just are, you know, pulling it in saying, hey, let's see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I'm sometimes not even sure if the lawyers know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's accurately stating the uh, the state of affairs <laughs> in this day and age. What language is Go.dev written in? <laughs> I, I caution you to be very careful here. Elixir. <laughs> <laughs> Steve. What? Oh, are, we not, are we not saying Redact. that? Redact. No. <laughs> it's Ruby. troll. Ruby, Ruby on Rails. Ruby. <laughs> I thought it was Ruby. Haskell. It was Haskell, right? <laughs> so what's the real answer? <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. And we'll play some celebratory music there. Yeah. Of course it's go. <laughs> Can you talk about like more of the technology though? Like, is it like mm. an API or is it like you're using templates on the back end? Like, can you talk a little bit about what you're using to build it all? Um, yeah, so the entire back end is written in Go, and then the front end is just all Go templates. So it's almost the majority of it's HTML and CSS. I think for a really long time, we had absolutely no JavaScript. Um, and even now, it's pretty, like, limited. And then the site itself is hosted on um, the Google Cloud platform. So the high-level architecture is we have a system that we call our data ingestion system, which essentially extracts uh, data from the module mirror and then transforms it and then puts it into a Postgres database, which is hosted on Google Cloud SQL. And then the front end, we also just have a service, which is just like uh, pulling data out of this Postgres database, serving requests. We have um, Redis, which we use for caching. And yeah, that's pretty high level overview of it. Hmm. Is it Google App Engine or? It is, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I use App Engine all the time. I love it. Mm -hmm. It's very, very easy for deploying and scaling and all of that. So it's been kind of nice, especially given that we had a small engineering team working on it. Hmm. Yeah, and it will scale, won't it? Significantly as well. Mm -hmm. That's something that's nice, especially when you're not really into uh, the operational side of things, you can sort of not worry about it. So yeah, I'm all over that. So that's great to hear.
Hi there, this is John Calhoun, one of your GoTime panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. Uh, again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. And don't forget that last slash gotime bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that gotime gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening. So, actually, we have a new regular part of our show, and it's going to get its own jingle as well. And it's Unpopular Opinion. So we're going to ask, do you have an unpopular opinion that you'd like to share? Anyone? I can start. Please. This just comes to mind because uh, people on the Go team make fun of me for this a lot. But my unpopular opinion is that the New York City buses are the best way to commute across Manhattan. Oh, that is, that does sound controversial. <laughs> better than cabs, better than subway. Take the buses. Really? It's so great. Yeah. It's basically an Uber black car. It's like a giant car. It's come here. It's picked you up. It's got Wi-Fi. It's got views. Yeah. We're waiting for New York City mass transit to disrupt. There are new seats on the M14 now. You're joking. Nice. It's so great. That's, that's a great one. Steve, do you have one? So my unpopular opinion is that I think Windows is the best operating system. And it was proven unpopular in preparing for this podcast. Um, <laughs> so but, for anybody who isn't familiar, um, when we do these episodes, every guest records their own audio just so we have a little bit better quality. And I think Steve is our first guest with Windows, or at least our first guest with Windows who made me help him set up the recording. So I didn't know how to do it and had to figure that out. Steve's the first modern day programmer I've ever met that uses Windows, actually. So it, Steve, yes, that is an unpopular opinion. I, I use the other operating systems too. Like I'm not mm -hmm. exclusive to Windows, but um, mm. I really like Windows 10. I think they've done a really good job with it. I like Windows subsystem for Linux and I've got Bash in my Windows and and I really feel very comfortable with it. And, you know, I do develop on it. It is my primary development environment, but I also, you know, it's nice that I can do photography work and video Minecraft. editing and... I, I mean, don't uh, do Minecraft on it, but I no, might play Minecraft. the occasional game. And it's, you know, Windows is, is quite good at that as well. What's that game, that little game with the grid where you find the bombs? Mine oh, Minesweeper. Sweeper. Minesweeper, that's what I meant. Let me do that again and we can edit that in. Minesweeper. Oh, I like the way it was. <laughs> I, I thought oh, that yeah. was better. 
No, but Minecraft's on everything. I think Minesweeper's only on Windows. I miss it. That's why. That's the thing I miss from. Honestly, from I don't even know if it still is on Windows. Let's find out. Nineteen ninety-seven is calling Matt, and it wants no. you back there. I did. I like no. XP. It does not ship with Windows anymore. Apparently, like Uh-oh. I just searched for Minesweeper, and it did not. I. Ha- <laughs> I don't know. It's. Uh, it wants to party like it's in nineteen ninety-nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently people weren't productive enough at work, so they had to get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. I once dual-booted my Mac so I could play a game of Minesweeper. <laughs> wow. You couldn't, like, find one online somewhere? No, I didn't have the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, XP was all right. But uh, actually, I know that they've put a lot, of, uh, a, lot, a lot of effort into Windows recently for developers and stuff. And, of course, you can be successful in Go with Go, can't you, on Windows? Yeah, Go honestly was the language that let me shift to Windows like full time because said nobody ever. That's Steve. You're the only person in the world where he's that, not where the that's only happened. one. I'm not. Uh, I'm guaranteed. Not the only one. I think Brian Kelson Go, uses Go or, or Windows every yeah. once in a while. No, but that yeah. Go led you. Like Go was your gateway drug to Windows. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> for, for my personal experience, other other dynamic languages and other languages were a little more cumbersome. And I'm not a Windows like Visual C++ programmer or .NET programmer. Um, so using kind of the more dynamic open source languages, I always found like it was jumping through hoops and you'd find uh, edge cases that nobody else was hitting and then Go just worked. And I could mm. cross-compile for my Windows machine just, for all the Linux. So you're that? like a walking advertisement for Windows. We better call them to sponsor. I can't believe you just said they. it just worked. It did. <laughs> That's the Apple <laughs> slogan. That's the Apple logo? <laughs> slogan? That's the Apple slogan, yeah. Well, they should live up to it more. Yeah. So <laughs> did you ever use Java before then? I have spent my entire career avoiding Java. Okay. I was going to say, Java is one of the few languages where I didn't have much issue using different pro- like different operating systems. You I think part of the reason the same issue across all operating systems you made. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that was part of the reason why like I learned Java when I was, you know, in college and stuff and it was kind of the language I stuck with then. But then later I learned Ruby and uh, that one would have been terrible like cuz I tried it on Windows and I was just like, "Nope, this is not working." Yeah, actually me too. Ruby was the reason I got a Mac. I bought a Mac so I could do Ruby on Rails. Visual Studio, though, I have to say, was, and I think still is, very good for, if you're doing C-sharp or any of the .NET flavors of things, uh, Visual Studio was just, I mean, amazing, really. Um, And, of course, VS Code, which is Microsoft, that is, I think, the most popular editor for Go on a Mac for people still. Okay, so we have a little bit of time left. Do you guys want to talk about the last aspect of Go.dev, the uh, learning side? I, I was hoping we'd get to it. Because that's this Carmen show. Is it my show? Oh, yeah. Nah. And it's also right. kind of your show. It's also kind of my show. I am both a guest and a host today. Pretty weird. Learn.go.dev, yes. It is what I would call the part of go.dev that I'm really excited about and is ripe for the most community collaboration, contribution, and ownership. Some of the original feedback when it first came out was why didn't my site or my YouTube channel or whatnot make it in? And uh, to that, I say, 
let's talk because I really want to be able to, to do this. The one thing that we're finding when we're doing, I did a lot of research and put a lot of work into wondering okay, how can we make this useful is um, finding who are the people that we're forgetting about. And so we found, a, um, and then also what we found there was one zero coding experience. So we're not even starting with Go as a second or third language. And so we partnered with Code Academy to provide that meaning I know nothing about coding at all, and I want to try Go as my first language. And Code Academy, that's their bread and butter. And so we partnered with them, and it was really a good partnership. And there's probably uh, the data that I can share is that we have roughly 70,000 people since they launched that course, that, and we made it available free through a sponsorship. That's, that's a huge number, 70,000 yeah, people. It really is. I'll share. I'll share more later. But yeah, it's really. I get a weekly reports on that. And uh, there's four modules for free. The whole course is eight modules. You can go to codecademy.com. The other gap that was missing was people working in companies that they just, for whatever reason, they didn't want the tour of Go wasn't working for them or other self-learning sites. Um, John, <laughs> Go for Sizes, and also like other things. They just wanted to like. They wanted to be handed the problem that they wanted to, to solve, right? Like, how do I do X in Go? Or from, from Java to Go for Y. And so we just looked at some of the things that many people were using Go, like the specialties, verticals, if you will. And we chose four of the four most common based on the data that we have via surveys and other research. And we decided to find and, and tr provide curated learning journeys for those learners in particular. And we got really good feedback for that. Like, thank you for taking me step by step. Because what we found was there was two different psychological mindsets for adopters. And you've, if you've heard of uh, Crossing the Chasm book, so there's like early majority, early adopters, late majority, late adopters. And there's a different psychology with each one of those. And the psychology that we're finding with Crossing the Chasm is... I want to just explore, I want to learn, I want to be given the space to kind of take the time to learn it versus a site, the late majority adopter, what we call enterprise, and that is just show me how to do it, right? Show me how to do it in Go. And so that's what the idea behind the curated learning journeys based on these very specific, I have things that I want to do. So plans in 2020 are to continue to partner with more of the community to help find more gaps for those people for whom all the existing things aren't working. We want to keep it free and we want to be able to make sure that all the different, what we're finding is that uh, you ask uh, um, 10 people, how do you learn? And you're going to get 10 different answers. And so there's so many different learning modalities and we want to be able to have a variety of learning modalities that appeal to a lot of people. But the one and the, the last thing is, and this touched on the events that we talked about earlier, is the best outcomes happen when you learn together in person in a group. And that's really hard to do, but we're hoping to leverage maybe meetups or online meetups. Um, so in person doesn't mean that I'm right next to you. It's also leveraging tools like VS Code for pairing, right? And then learning together or going through together and um, hand over hand kind of uh testing things out. And so we're trying to look into that a little bit more. So I talked to a lot of, I've asked a lot of opinions. John has a learning site and I actually wrote to John, didn't know that I was doing it in that capacity because we hadn't made Go.dev public at the time. But I just want to ask people's feedback. I've tried to ask a lot of different people's feedback for various things and I'm going to continue to do so so that we can continue to make learn.go.dev 
just really what we en- envision it to be, which is a collaborative work of art that is quality and serves a variety of learners to bring in um, the next two million. Can I just add, I know one of the things, at least from my perspective, that got me excited about seeing that site is that one of the things that's at least hard for me is to reach people who have like limited accessibility. So let's say they speak another language, like English isn't their first language, or they need transcripts if they're doing videos or something like that. I know, at least for you know, independent creators and stuff like that, that's a challenging thing. But I know that as a language grows, sometimes people learn, you know, they'll learn Go better if they can learn it in Spanish or whatever language is native to them. And I like seeing something, you know, with, with Google behind it, or it seems like Google's behind it at least, in the sense that I feel like it opens more doors for that, you know, reaching a, a much larger audience that would be much harder for somebody like myself or anybody else to really reach. That internationalization is in our future. And it's also been the thing that I've seen at some of the bigger conferences. Like we really want to, so we have people like Friends of Go, um, a company based in Spain that wrote back and said, hey, we have this training and for Spanish speakers. And we also have some trainers in a um, variety of countries, including India, uh, parts of Asia, and then in Europe that have also said, can we come and can we collaborate? So, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so um, the name of the game for learn.go.dev is really, you know, seeking the feedback that we need to seek and making sure that we get both representation as well as quality. Yeah, that's great. And do you see there being a community aspect of this uh, too? Will it stay curated completely or do you ever imagine people being able to vote up things and if something's, you know, that is, we go round and round on that, right? Some people say, oh gosh, you know, if we could vote up, vote down, that is going to be its own quality indicator of itself. The problem is that the, everything can be gamed, right? And so right now, the only thing that can't be gamed is people whom we can trust to be ethical about curating things and also making sure that we constantly go back and, and feed into what the global community needs in terms of, of learning gaps, whether that's content gaps, modality gaps, whatnot. So for the foreseeable future, it's going to be curated. If such time we could find a way to do voting that we don't feel can be gamed or turns into uh, go go vote. You know, the, the thing I wanted to stop and prevent was someone saying, go vote on my thing because you're my friend versus go vote on my thing because you personally learned from it or you found it to be very beneficial for you. So, but we've gone around and around on it. Um, I remember having like a working group or a roundtable at GopherCon in July in San Diego. And then we had about 15 people show up to two sessions. And we, this was an idea that came up and someone really wanted to push forward on that. And I continued to research it and look into it and ultimately said, not right now until we can answer some of the gamifying questions. Yeah. I mean, of course, even if there isn't the mechanisms automatically to or you know programmatically to vote people still do have a voice of course in any of the communities they're in there's there is a great go community on twitter and there are other communities of course there's the gophers slack so yeah i think i've seen a few examples really in the community where although there isn't an official way for people to share ideas and things yet having the conversation out in public really does influence things, doesn't it? So people's views are, of course, heard. And and so therefore, you should say it, you know, if people do want to contribute. I think I will. 
the one thing that I want to start pub- t- talking about more publicly is in order for a site to be useful, you're navigating two um, sort of things that pull up against each other. And one is keeping a 30,000 foot view to make sure that you aren't having any blind spots. But you also need to dive deep down into the actual you need you needs of a particular subgroup. And so kind of coming up and down and up and down is an incredibly challenge, uh, challenging thing. And so it's one I hope to help with. Oh, Matt, Matt, you also mentioned uh, you mentioned there Twitter and and go for Slack. It's important to recognize that the intent of this site is not to displace those great resources that already exist. So we say it's by the ecosystem for the ecosystem, but it doesn't mean that it's going to replace all the existing ecosystem solutions. The intent here was to fill some gaps that we saw were there. It's largely a curation site. It's actually to reference those existing things that are there. So as I heard you describing these voting mechanisms, it sounded to me a lot, lot like Reddit. And the, the Reddit channel, I think, is, a, is great. Like, I, I, I subscribe to the Golang Reddit channel. I read it every day. Um, I always see good news and new articles and new talks on it, and, and I think that's a great mechanism uh, to get the voice out and, of course, you know, the other things you referenced already. Mm. But if you want a voting thing, we have it. It's it's the Reddit, uh, you know, r slash Golang. Um, feel free to use it. It's a really good resource. Yeah, great. There's also the Go Weekly newsletter, and there's a Changelog newsletter as well, which is the sort of home of this podcast. So anyone that wants to sign up to that, you can find, you really do kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on that way. It's great. I, I will say the only thing I differentiate between reddit and a, and a voting thing is just that reddit is kind of it's not real time but it's like it's time boxed in some sense whereas mm-hmm. i could see some value in voting for learning resources but i completely agree that the the way voting and everything works it'd be very hard to do that correctly so it i, I completely get why you're not doing it but i, yeah. I do see that as slightly different from reddit because i agree it's very similar but i've seen tons of cases where you know, I have several free, like I have free resources that I give out and I've seen people post them, even though they've been posted on Reddit before, they'll post them again. And people are like, I've never seen this before. And it's like, okay, well, clearly nobody's going back and searching these things or, you know, something's happening. So there is like some, I guess, some difference there. Uh, so it, it's also important to recognize most of the content on the site is static. As Carmen said, we, we've talked about doing internationalization. We're using a tool that lets us do internationalization with it. And, you know, there's opportunities to, like, we do not have plans to do this yet, but we've we've made sure that the options are there later if we wanted to add additional curators, maybe localized curators from different areas to, to help us with this as well. So th- there's, an er- there's an element there where we could open it to some degree and, and get support from the community, but also keep it tightly curated and, and uh, you know, high quality bar up there. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much to our guests, Julie Q, Steve Francia, and our regular panelists, John Calhoun, Carmenando. I will see you next time on Go Time. All right, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up, you'll find us. 
hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the Changelaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for Changelaw Master in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're talking about GoDev. It's a user-friendly hub of curated resources for Go. And we're joined by two of the brains behind it. Steve Francia, also known as SBF13, and Julie Q are joining us. Hello. Hi. Hi. And we're also joined by Carl Minando and John Calhoun. Hello, you two. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Matt, I think you kind of lied. I think Carmen's partially behind uh, Go.dev as well. Yeah, we're actually joined by three of them. You just happen oh. to be regularly joined by one of them. I'm stealth. I'm stealth. Right. Okay, let's... Uh, I'll do it again. So it's three of the brains behind Go.dev. <laughs> and it's Go.dev. Go. Okay, Go.dev. This is why we do it. So for anyone listening, this is how the sausages are made. <laughs> All right. I have to do it again now and make it sound like it was the first time. That's the hard bit. You yeah, all you, know you, it's not. You don't call it like Google Calm. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. Yeah. US Gov. Okay. It's clever because it's also the domain, isn't it? Yeah. That's... Got it. Thank you. Good. Right. Well, let's do it again then, everyone. It's fine. I'm not embarrassed. I thought you did a really good job, by the way. Other Same than like, the obvious mistakes, it was really well done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. This is why we do iterative development.